are now doing part two of this uh, interesting series uh, that I'm calling The Sword and the Cross, about two kingdoms. There's a lot of political buzz in the air, and so uh, this is a teaching series where I want to just get down a biblical perspective about the Christian's role in all of that. And we started this last week. I'm going to continue it this week and, and, uh, and next week. Uh, as I was working through this, it became clear that we need three weeks on this. And so uh, I, I want to just use this as our starting point. We gave a number of scriptures last week. Uh, I'm just going to use one of them as sort of our starting point reflection, where Jesus is talking to Pilate in, Matthew, in John 18. In the course of Pilate's interrogation, Jesus says, now listen to this, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, you would certainly know it because it would fight like this world. This is basically what he's saying. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. And one of his disciples tried that, but Jesus rebuked him, as you will recall. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You, you, you say that I'm king, and, and there's a certain truth to my being king, but the, 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 king, the kingdom that I'm king over is not like any kingdom you have ever seen in your life. It's radically different. And the proof is that the followers of Jesus don't act like the normal defenders of the kingdom of the world. Uh, they've got an altogether different method to them. They imitate their Lord, their captain, who gave his life among other things, as an example for us to imitate. And that, by the foolishness of the cross, the outlandish ridiculousness of giving away your life, of serving, of sacrificing for others, by that means, the kingdom of God, like a quiet, unnoticed mustard seed growing under the ground, the kingdom of God expands. Praise God. Let's pray. And can I get some people around the auditorium, too? Just keep me covered in prayer. Would you raise your hand if you keep me covered in prayer? I need, some I need some more intercessors. All right, thank you very much. Let's talk to our dad. Our Father, uh, we just pray this morning that your word would go forward, and I pray, God, through the power of your spirit, help us to hear what is said, Lord. Help us to get clear on the unique, radical, beautiful, transforming power of your distinctive kingdom, that kingdom that is not of this world. And help us, Lord God, disentangle it from all other sorts of agendas that we can see with a perfect clarity our call to be kingdom of God people. Give us a vision for the kingdom of God that is pure and motivating and transforming in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. We need to understand that the world of the first century Judaism that Jesus came into when he was incarnated as, as a son of man, it was a politically hot world. I mean, politics was in the air. There was a widespread hypervigilance on political matters. The Jews for several centuries had been under Roman or Greek uh, oppression and they were tired of it. Not just for human reasons, because their rights were being violated and, and denied and whatnot, but they were, they were bothered because 
On the, they were to be the people who worshiped the one true God, and yet these pagans had authority over them, and they took that as a slam not only against them, but against their God. So there was a, a theological uh, energy to the, the political polarities of the time. And Jesus came into that world. In that world, a, a, a great book on this is John Yoder's The Politics of Jesus where he just shows how everything Jesus did would have been being watched by people through a political lens. Everything he did was politically significant. And people tried to pull him into the, the politics of his age, and there was a lot going on in the governments of the politics of his age. But what's amazing is that Jesus uh, never allows himself to be dragged into that. And the very fact that he didn't do that and didn't address didn't let them define the terms of the issues that he was addressing. That itself was a huge political statement because he was saying directly and indirectly that the kingdom that he comes to bring is not of this world. He's not going to play by the rules of this world. He's not going to buy into the agendas and the conflicts and the polarities and the struggles of the kingdom of this world. The kingdom that he has come to, uh, to build is not of this world. He's not just going to tweak the political system a little bit. He's not going to improve the political system a little bit. He's coming to build a countercultural kingdom, a kingdom that operates by a totally different methodology. In fact, it's the opposite of the world. Jesus didn't engage and, and even comment on the, the, the various political officials of his day, though they were doing some incredible things. And people wanted him to comment on it, but he didn't comment on it, not because he wasn't empowered with a vote. He didn't comment on it. He could have called 10,000 leagues of angels. He could have done what a lot of people wanted him to do and overthrow the Roman government. He could have done that. But see, what Jesus did, he did on purpose. He, he allowed himself to be crucified by the kingdom of the world to establish the kingdom that is of God. And now his people are called to imitate him. He was the kingdom of God here on earth, and now the kingdom of God is to be, be present in all who follow him, and we are to watch him and do as a corporate whole what he did individually. You see, some of the uniqueness of the kingdom that Jesus came to build by the very choice of his disciples. On the one hand, he cho chooses a Simon, who is a zealot. On the other hand, he chooses a Matthew, who is a tax collector. Uh, the zealots were the ones who were the most liberals of the day. Uh, they, they wanted to pick up arms and overthrow the Roman government. They hated, they despised the Roman government. But there's one group of people that they despised more than the Roman government, one class of people they despised more than Romans, and that was tax collectors. Because the tax collector was a conservative of the conservatives. They liked the status quo. They benefited from the status quo. They kind of thought the Romans were nice guys. At least they thought we shouldn't uh, just, you know, rock the boat too much and, and, uh, and, and create waves with them. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government to, to collect taxes from their people, and often they'd rip their own people off to make a profit. And so Jesus calls a, a uh, Simon the Zealot, assassinator of tax collectors, and then he calls a Matthew a tax collector. <laughs> and he says, follow me. Follow me. And what is, I think, absolutely mind-boggling is that never once in the Gospels do you have Jesus commenting, hinting at 
Which of those ways of doing the kingdom of the world? Very different philosophies about how to do the kingdom of the world. He never comments about which of those is the better way. Which of those is closer to the kingdom of God way? And his not saying that speaks volume, volumes about the kingdom of God way. Namely, it's about a different kind of a kingdom. I'm sure Matthew and Simon had some very interesting discussions around the campfire at night. But see, what Jesus is showing is this. That, that w- when you have him as your common Lord and have him as your common Savior and you are part of, of, of a kingdom that is centered on him, then what you have in common dwarfs what you don't have in, con- in, in, in common in terms of your philosophy about how the kingdom of the world should operate. We can't really get a... We don't even have categories, I don't think, for how radically different a Simon and a Matthew would be. Uh, to say that Matthew would have been sort of the Rush Limbaugh of the day and, and, and Simon would have been the Paul Wellstone or the Ralph Nader of the day or you know, whoever's left of that, that, that doesn't quite capture the gulf between these two. Uh, if you were to say you know, a, a, a Rush Limbaugh and a communist, you'd be getting closer to the gulf between a Simon and a Matthew, and yet Jesus calls them both to be part of the kingdom of God. Because when you have the kingdom of God in common, the differences you have about how the government should operate are dwarfed in significance. Amen? It means that if we're really thinking along the lines of the kingdom of God, I should be able to get up here and tell you that I voted for Rush Limbaugh uh, in, in, in 98, and, and even though he didn't run, I just love the guy so much, and that shouldn't bother you. You shouldn't question my faith because I voted for Rush Limbaugh. Or if I told you that I, I voted, uh, that I'm a card-carrying socialist, that, that, that shouldn't cause you to question. What if I told you I was a card-carrying communist? I'm not. Put your guns away. But if I, would, if I did say that, You see, you might say, well, how does he square that with his Christianity? And and you can ask me that question. That's fine. But see, that shouldn't cause you to question the integrity of my faith because that's about my philosophy on how governments should be run. But see, what we have in common is Jesus Christ and this radically different, unique kind of kingdom that he called us both into. His kingdom is not of this world. Uh, I want to flesh out a little bit more, build on last week, the distinctness between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. There are two kingdoms, and everything hangs on our keeping these things distinct. Let's flesh this out a little bit more. There's the kingdom of the world, and there's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world operates with the sword, uh, or power over, power to enforce with threats, power to inflict pain if you disobey the the rules of the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God operates with the cross, which is power under, not power over. It's the power of imitating Jesus, not Caesar. And it's the power to win people's hearts through self-sacrificial acts of love. The power over kingdom has as as its head Satan. God uses the, the kingdom of the world to preserve or law and order, uh, to punish wrongdoers. Uh, Romans 13 says that. 2 Peter 2 says that. But the Bible also makes it clear that Satan is the lord of the power over kingdoms. He tells Jesus in Luke chapter 4, as we saw last week, that um, uh, all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of the world have been given to him. And he can give them to whoever he wants. Uh, their, their, their power and authority. And he offers them to Jesus if Jesus will worship him. Jesus doesn't dispute his claim, but he will not bow down and worship him in order to get those things. 
In the Revelations chapter 11, verse 15, we saw how all the various versions of the kingdom of the world, the power over governments of this world, all participate in one kingdom, which is the kingdom of Satan, which will eventually be overthrown by the kingdom of God. But note that they're all, they all participate in that. Satan is called the, the principality and power of, of the air, the, the one who controls the entire world, 1 John 5, 19. And that awareness has got to give every kingdom of God person a healthy suspicion about every version of the kingdom of the world. Now, under Satan, there are, are going to be uh, Caesars, which simply represents various people, uh, either an individual in totalitarian governments or a group of people uh, who, who have the authority to make laws and enforce laws. But see, in the kingdom of God, we've got one Lord, we've got one master, we've got one savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is our captain, and our ultimate allegiance is to him. We may be citizens of a kingdom of the world, but our ultimate citizenship we, show, we showed last week is in the kingdom of God, and Jesus Christ is our Lord. We obey him, first and foremost. The kingdom of the world is constructed on the flesh. The flesh is always looking out for number one. Uh, the, the interests of the kingdom of the world is about my rights, what's in it for me. Whereas the kingdom of God is built on the spirit of God, which is in the process of, uh, of, of leading us to crucify our flesh. Uh, and so the, the question of the kingdom of God is not what's in it for me, but rather what's in it for you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 to esteem the needs and the interests of others over your own. And that is what characterizes the power under kingdom. How can I serve you? How can I affirm worth uh, to you? How can I lift you up? The kingdom of the world operates by law, by threats, by power. It is the sword kingdom. It is the power over kingdom. It coerces conformative behavior. Whereas the kingdom of God operates by, by love, agape love, Christ-like love, which is about influencing people. You win, we, we imitate, we imitate uh, God who dies on the cross to win our hearts. He shows us how much he loves us as we are, and that is what has the power to change us from where we are to what he wants us to be. He wins us over, and so also in the kingdom of God. The power we have is to win hearts through uh, self-sacrificial acts of love. The kingdom of the world is interested in behavior. That's all it can shoot at. It's interested in conformity of behavior. It doesn't care about and can't care about your motives for the behavior or your inner state of being. It just has a law and you have to conform or you'll receive pain. Whereas the kingdom of God isn't so much interested in external behavior. It's rather interested in internal transformation on changing the inner heart of a person, the way they see themselves, their desires, their longings. And only self-sacrificial love can do that. The kingdom of the world is always tribal. It's always national. This is, a, this is a, an intrinsic aspect of the flesh. It's an extension of the flesh, what's in it for me. Uh, it surrounds itself with, with a group of people that says what's in it for us. Uh, it, it's always tribal. It's, it's us against them. Um, it's provincial. There's something intrinsic in the flesh that always wants to say that my way is the best way. Uh, my my, my uh, nationality is the best nationality. My football team is the best team. My school is the best school. My church is the best church. My family is the best family. It, 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 there's an, it's an intrinsic aspect of the flesh. And so most people who have died fighting in wars for their nations have sincerely believed that they were fighting for something good. Uh, th this is the best way to do it, and, and we will kill for it. The kingdoms of the world are always tribal and nationalistic, provincial, and so they pay a lot of attention to the parameters. Whereas, you see, in the kingdom of God, the perspective is universal. 
Because we know that Jesus Christ died for every human being. So every human being has absolute worth, infinite worth. And our main job in life is to uh, express that to them in word and in deed. It's not normal for the kingdom of the world to consider the, the boys in body bags on our side more important than the, the boys in body bags on their side. But from a kingdom of God perspective, we would consider all body bags to be equally tragic. The kingdom, the kingdom of the world is always involved in conflict because it's a power over kingdom. And if you're getting in the way of my power over, we'll have to go to war over this. Uh, and usually in the kingdom of the world, you demonize your enemies to rally up power against them. But in the kingdom of God, we are not allowed to have any enemies. We're forbidden to have enemies of flesh and blood. The ones who think that they are our enemies, we are commanded to love them, to serve them, to lay down our life for them. Which is why the king, while the kingdoms of the world are about conflict, the kingdom of God is about reconciliation. You may have, you, you may have uh, ought against me, but in the kingdom of God, uh, it, it's not about winning, it's about coming under and learning and getting understanding and, and, and finding a, 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 a common meeting place. The category that the kingdom of the world operates with is crime. Uh, disobedience against the law. It's a crime against society. Whereas the uh, kingdom of God operates in the category of sin. What separates us from God, what harms us, and what harms other people? Uh, it's the category of sin. And it's important to see those two distinct categories. Some things can be a crime but not sin, and some things can be sin but not a crime. When, when people broke the Jim Crow laws in, in the 50s, uh, that was a crime according to the kingdom of the world, but it wasn't a sin. No, in fact, that was a, a righteous act. At the same time, uh, in the kingdom of God, we would say that lust and greed and gluttony are, are sins, but I don't think we'd want to say that it should be a crime to be that. You see, the, the, the two different kingdoms that we're talking about. Now, we live in, and I'm thankful for this, we live in a version of the kingdom of the world that asks our opinion about how the kingdom of, of this version of the kingdom of the world should operate. What should be a crime in our society? And I thank God for that. I think it's, it's, it's a human dignifying thing, and I thank God for all who have sacrificed for us to have that opinion. But we need to, uh, uh, we need to clearly separate the two kingdoms in the process of answering this question. Here's two very different questions. Now follow me on this. Put on your thinking caps. Question number one is, the question you answer with your vote or any of your political activism. What's your opinion about how the sword should be wielded in your version of the kingdom of the world? What laws do you think should be passed? What should be considered a crime? What, in your opinion, is the best way to keep law and order? That's what the kingdom of the world is about. That's a good question, and we answer that. But there's a second question that we as kingdom of God ask, and that is, and this is the question we live in. What are we called to do to further the kingdom of God? And that's a different question. What, 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 is, what, 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 what is the sin here and now that we should address that's keeping us from being all that God knows that we can be, that's separating us from God? Uh, what, what are the things that we need to be loved out of? How do we best replicate Calvary? towards one another, and how do we best replicate Calvary to the outside world? That's the question that we as distinct kingdom of God people answer uh, and, 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 and are to live in. See, Matthew and Simon would disagree about question number one, but they wouldn't disagree about question number two. You, do have, you can have serious disagreements about how you think government should be run, but still have the kingdom of God and the focus of the kingdom of God in common. Consider this, for example. 
Uh, a person could say uh, that I think that the church, and they, they should say that the church should have a Calvary type of love towards all gay people and, and embrace them and serve them and walk with them as much as we would gossipers or gluttons or any other category of sinners. We, ought, we need to have this outlandish love towards them. That's their number two kind of question. But at the same time, they might say that it's best for law and order that we prohibit them from being legally married. And there's not a contradiction in that. A person along the same lines could say that, that homosexuality is a sin in the Bible. and It's hamartia. It's missing the mark. It's, it's not God's ideal for us. And so it, along with gluttony and greed and lust of every sort, it's something that we ought to be moving away from. It is sin in the kingdom of God. And yet they might, in answering the first question about how do you think government should be run, they might say that, that uh, it, it, it's uh, best for law and order to give them their right to, uh, to be legally married. Matthew and Simon would answer the, the, the political question differently, but what they have in common is that we're all sinners saved by grace, so we need to embrace them and walk with them and, 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 and be used by God to bring about transformation in their life as God uses them to bring about transformation in our life. Amen. Two very different things. It's precisely because our opinion is asked, and thank God for that, but it's precisely because our opinion is asked in this version of the kingdom of the world, this democratic kingdom of the world, that we have to be particularly, care particularly careful to not get sucked into thinking that our opinions about the kingdom of the world are synonymous with the kingdom of God. It's important that we don't identify our particular ideas about how the, what, should, what should and should not be a crime in society. We don't identify that with the kingdom of God. And this is what concerns me as I ended last week with uh, this concept that we need to take America back for God. Because it, it, it paints an image. I don't know what the back to is that people want to get to, but, but it paints a picture of America as a Christian nation, or at least once upon a time a Christian nation. And, and uh, we still could be a Christian nation if we just tweaked the system a little bit more, if we just had more power over and I want to submit to you that that is a contradiction in terms. Uh, it's like wanting to have a Christian bicycle or something. Because the nation is, the government is about a power over, whereas the kingdom of God is about a power under. And when we fuse to the two together, historically and today, it has disastrous consequences. Now, I want to flesh out in more detail what some of these consequences are. I have right now in my head, I'm breaking it down into five categories. I'm going to get through two of them, I hope, this morning, and then uh, we'll pick up the other three. But by then, it might be seven. Who knows? But we'll pick them up next week. Number one, when we do not keep distinct the kingdom of God from the kingdom of the world, when we tend to fuse them and, and believe that, we are, that this is a Christian nation, I submit to you, it harms our witness for Christ. It harms our witness to Christ. We need to understand this, lock it in, because it's the central thing that we're about. God has wired it, in, wired it into the DNA of the church that the main way the world's supposed to believe on him is through our love. John 13, 35, it's by your love that the world will know that, that you're my disciples. Uh, John 17, Jesus prays, Father, uh, I pray that, that they all may be one, even as we are one, that the world may know that you have sent me. What he's saying there is this. I pray that the love of the triune God, that perfect, unsurpassable, unconditional love that characterizes God throughout eternity, I pray that they would embody that, that they would incarnate that, that they would live in that, that they would clothe themselves in that. 
Why? Because that's the goal for all of creation. But in the process, as the church manifests Calvary-like love to all people at all times and all situations, no ifs, ands, and buts, as the church does that, now the world is convinced, becomes convinced that Jesus Christ is for real. That's what he's saying in John 17. And the, way they, the reason they believe that God is for real is because they see God. They're seeing a, a, a love that the world is not capable of. Our lives are supposed to create the question that only the reality of Jesus Christ can answer. Why would you take time out of your Saturday to, to just help out a school? Uh, why would you do that? Why would you spend time uh, uh, affirming worth to me when no one else in my life has ever affirmed worth to me? Uh, uh, why do you help me carry in my groceries and, 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 and I'm just mean to you? Uh, you know, and, and our life is to create that kind of question so that creates an opportunity for us to share the good news. Oh, you see, I've got a God who outrageously loved me just as I am. He died for me on the cross of Calvary. Can I tell you about him? Uh, it, it's through our love that the world sees that Jesus Christ is for real. It's that Calvary type of foolish, foolish love. God leverages everything on this. He doesn't leverage it on our clever arguments, on our nice programs, on our wonderful churches, on our eloquent preaching, on our powerful music. He'll use all those things. But the main thing that God leverages the advancement of his kingdom on, of is when people, when his, when his children obey him and, and repeat Calvary to others. We imitate Jesus, not Caesar. That's how the, how, how the kingdom goes forward. But you see, if we identify this as a Christian nation, then Caesar gets wrapped up with the word Christian. And now everything America does gets tagged as what Christians do. And America does a lot of good things and also sometimes does some nasty things. But even when it does the good things, the best it or any other kingdom of the world can be is a decent power over regime. That's the best a nation can do. No, a nation can't replicate Calvary love towards others. And when we identify a nation as Christian, now everything the nation does, gets, it pollutes our distinct, unique witness to the world upon which God leverages everything. See, God doesn't expect nations. The role that nations play, that governments play, is a sword role, a power over role, a punishing role. Read Romans 13, read 2 Peter chapter 2. That's, that's how they're supposed to function. God doesn't expect nations to turn the other cheek, but he does expect Christians to turn the other cheek. God doesn't expect uh, nations to go the extra mile uh, when an oppressor asks them to go one mile, but he does demand kingdom people to do that. God doesn't expect nations to bless those who persecute it. Uh, but God does expect kingdom people to bless those who persecute us. God doesn't expect nations to, to uh, sacrifice themselves for their enemies. Uh, th that's a contradiction in terms, but God does expect kingdom people to be willing to be sacrificed for our enemies. We need to keep the two kingdoms distinct. And I believe to the core of my being that Satan uses this confusion to pollute and dilute and ruin, undermine the, the, the witness of kingdom people to the world. I, I, if you've ever talked to a Muslim, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll get this. I, I just see Satan whispering in so many ears, and I hear it especially in the ears of, of Muslims. Uh, he, he's saying, look what those Christians do. Oh, those Christians bomb you. Those Christians oppress you. Think of the history of what those Christians have done to you. Uh, and, and look at how those Christians live. Look at this, so, this Christian nation. It's full of debauchery. It's full of pornography. It's licentiousness. That's what Christianity does. You see what Christianity does? And he uses that so that when, 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 when kingdom people come along, 
the hearing is John, the hearing is screwed up. The eyes are jaundiced. They can't hear the gospel. It is to our advantage, it's to the advantage of the kingdom of God to say as loudly and clearly as we can, his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. America's not the kingdom of God, and China's not the kingdom of God, and the Soviet Union's not the kingdom of God. There is no national kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, by definition, occurs wherever there are people who are willing to come under others and lay down their life for others and serve others and turn the other cheek and do that rather foolish thing that characterizes the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God happens when people imitate Jesus, not Caesar. We've got to keep those two things distinct. And the idea of this as a Christian nation or an almost Christian nation undermines that. The second thing, the catastrophic thing I believe that this uh, fusion of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world does is it undermines our, uh, the mission focus of the church in America. It undermines the mission focus of the church to Americans and others who live in America. Think of, here's what I mean. If you go to Cambodia, where I just came back from, uh, if you're a missionary in Cambodia, and a missionary is simply a person on a mission. I, I, I carry a mission. I'm a missionary. It's not hard to stay focused because everything around you reminds you that you're an alien here. Uh, this is different. Uh, you, you're not first and foremost a citizen of Cambodia. The, the civic religion of, uh, of Cambodia is Buddhism. And so you see Buddhist, uh, a Buddhist you know, kind of veneer all over the place. And, and it reminds you that you're a Christian and your job here, your foremost job, is to uh, communicate in word and deed the truth of Jesus Christ's lordship uh, to demonstrate that outlandish love and win people's hearts over to Jesus Christ. You're reminded of that. It's not hard to stay focused. Being a missionary in Cambodia or any other non-Christian nation, look how we say that, like there's a, there is a Christian one. But see, if you go over there where they don't have any kind of a Christian gloss to them, then uh, 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 you're, you're, you're never tempted to confuse your opinions about how the government should be run with the missionary focus that you have as a kingdom of God person. It's, being hard, it's hard being a missionary over there, but at least it's clear. And so it is in most of the world. But, now hear me, Holy Spirit, help us to hear this. That clarity is precisely what is lacking here in America. Over there, you can know for sure who's in and who's out. Over here, the water is all murky, which is what makes being a missionary in America a rather difficult thing. Uh, polls show that almost 80%, actually over 80% of all Americans identify themselves as Christian. Now, what George Barna has shown over and over again is that if you ask any kind of question about what that means, you quickly discover that it doesn't mean much of anything. By any sort of biblical definition of Christianity, it means really nothing. Uh, basically, it means, I'm, well, I'm born in America, and this is a Christian nation, and I'm a pretty decent person. In fact, polls have shown that in terms of what Americans say they believe, America is the most religious, developed country on the planet. But in terms of our actual morality, defined as what we would do if we could not possibly be, be caught, we are the most immoral, developed country on the planet. And what that tells us is that we've got a whole lot of professed religion doing absolutely no good. Come on. <laughs> what we've got here is 
what we've got here, and I believe I have always had here, is, is a, a form of deism where there's a belief in God and God plays sort of a social role. We've got a, you know, a, a veneer of Christianity. We've got the semblance, a sort of quasi-Christian cloaking on everything, uh, but, but, but uh, it doesn't really do any good in terms of changing the people's hearts. It just dresses it up. What we've got here is, 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 is a civic religion where there are some Christian principles, yes, and, and, and some Christian echoes, yes. Uh, we have one nation under God, yes, and we've got uh, in God we trust and our currency, and, and, and we can say a blessing before, in some places at least, a blessing before a football game and other social functions. We've got a social sort of religion going on. But pull back that veneer. Look past the in God we trust. Pull back the, the, the sort of quasi-Christian externals, and what you will find is something that is altogether pagan. And I submit to you that America is, if you pull back this veneer of the social civic religion, we've got a pagan nation. It is as pagan as any nation could be. In fact, maybe more than most nations, judged by what we would do if, if we could not get caught. It's pagan. And you are as much a missionary in America as you would be if you were in Cambodia. You see, I, I, there was a student I, I, I met in, at Bethel College who grew up on a farm in South Dakota. And he was a sculptor. And what he used to do in his spare time, because he was bored a lot, is out in, out on the, you know, out in the fields, he would take some manure and uh, uh, cow, cow dung. And he would shape it. He would make sculptures out of it. <laughs> he had to be out there doing some job or other, so he just practiced his sculptures with that. Kind of gross, but that's what he did. And, and, and what he tells me is that, that he actually kind of formed a, a new kind of art with this where he could take the cow dung and fashion it into people or, or flowers or whatever. And then he, you, you could put a certain kind of veneer on it or something to harden it. And then you could paint it. And you could make it look like a porcelain doll or a porcelain anything. And it was really pretty attractive. But see, it was still manure. You can make it look like a delicious apple, but you take one bite out of it, and you're going to find out it ain't no apple. <laughs> now, here's my point. Let the manure stand for everything that's inconsistent with the kingdom of God. And what we have I, I, here in, in this country is a civic religion that is a nice veneer of manure. Uh, we've got a whole. We've got some laws, and th th that's good stuff. I mean, the kingdom of the kingdom of the world. It, all it can do is give laws. But we've got certain laws and, 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 and certain principles and, and certain customs, certain social religious things that dress up manure. But see, you, you can you can you can pass a lot of laws to keep unsaved people from acting as unsaved as they like, and you can pass a lot of laws to get unsaved people to to play some social roles and, and use God in it. If, if you have laws about it, you can get unsaved people to, to go to church twice a year or, or, or however much you require them to. But all the laws in the world and all the customs in the world and all the veneer in the world and all the civic stuff in the world isn't going to make a saved person one ounce more, an unsaved person, one ounce more saved. All the polish and the veneer and the painting in the world doesn't make manure less manure. The only thing that can begin to address manure is the Spirit of God. 
You see, I, I, I was a pile of dung. I, I was a pile of dung. But God has taken this pile of dung and, and he breathed life into it. He made it a new creature in Christ Jesus. He changed not so much the outside immediately, but he went past the outside and he got on the inside. He worked through the external veneer, through the polish, through the paint, through all the dressing up. And he says, Greg Boyd, your heart is a pile of dung. Let me work with it. And the way he works with it is through Calvary-like love, where he begins to change the way I think about myself, the way I feel about God, the way I feel about other people. And now, now there's life coming into this dung. It's no longer a pile of dung. I may keep some dung behavior around, you know, I haven't quite got the message yet. But on the inside, praise God, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus, and so is everybody who puts their life in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The kingdom of God happens when change comes on the inside. Laws can't do it. Policies can't do it. Civic religion can't do it. Social decency can't do it. I can dress up manure, and there's a place for that. Uh, you know, thank God when you keep a murderer from murdering just because there's a law. But don't think you've ever taken the murderer, the murdering out of the murderer's heart by passing a law. Only the Spirit of God working through the obedient, self-sacrificial love of the people of God can, can change a person on the inside. Only God only God can take a sinner and turn him into a saint. You can pass a law to keep a racist from committing racial uh, acts, but only God can take the racist out of the person, amen? You can pass laws that keep a person from stealing, but only God can take the desire for stealing away from a person. Only God can change the heart. Only God can change the mind. And he does it on the inside by looking past, going past, working past the external veneer. Our unique role as kingdom of God people is to see through the veneer and don't be fooled by it. If we think we are in a Christian nation, if we buy the veneer, then what we'll do is spend a whole lot of time and energy trying to polish up the veneer. And we think if we just make it a little shinier and a little brighter and, and form it this way or that way, well, then it's less manure-like. No, it's still manure. In fact, in some ways, too much of that can confuse the issue. Because people, as the polls show, people think that they're not manure because they've got a nice veneer. Sometimes it's better just to let the manure sit and smell. And not try to dress it up. Not try to, because at least there you know what you're working with. This is why the prostitutes and the tax collectors gravitated to Jesus more than the veneer-polished Pharisees, who were whited sepulchers, polished on the outside, but were dung on the inside. Don't, see, if we, if we buy the veneer, if we buy the civic religion as, as closer to the kingdom of God than the civic religion in Cambodia or the civic religion anywhere else, then we lose our focus. We, we, we stop, we don't have, we, we, we pollute the distinct missionary call on our lives. In fact, we, we, we talk about missionaries as those who go to other countries. Oh, we got to send out missionaries over there. But we don't see ourselves as missionaries. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you are a missionary in the United States as much as if you were in Cambodia. It's just that it's a little more difficult to see sometimes because there's this civic religion, this quasi-Christian sort of veneer around which convinces people that they're already on the inside and, and, and what needs to happen is for God to get a hold of their heart and, and show them that, in fact, they need Jesus Christ, not just in a social, appropriate kind of way, but in the core of their being, in a transforming sort of way. If we believe the veneer, we spend a lot of time and energy. Now, you're asked your opinion about the veneer. Give it. That's fine. Be a Matthew or a Simon, I don't care. But never forget that the veneer is just the veneer. 
And, and what we're called to do is to provide an opportunity for God to work on the inside, on the dung itself. Keep your fo focus. Here's what helps me. Pretend you're in Cambodia. When you go out of here, pretend that you're, the, the kingdom of God that you are should be no different whether you're in America or in Cambodia or in South Africa or in, in the Soviet Union. The kingdom of God stays the same. It's the universal. Now, your opinions about how the kingdom of the world should operate will differ from place to place. But as a kingdom of God person, folks, we're in Cambodia. So when we go out of here, don't buy the veneer. Keep your focus. Paul says this in 2 Timothy, and I close with this. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that the good soldier, and that's what we are, does not become entangled in civilian affairs, but is always seeking to please his enlisting officer. The image you get out of that verse is of a Roman soldier stationed in a foreign land. And Paul is saying, look, they know better than to get overly entangled in civilian affairs. Now, if someone asks them their opinion, they get the right to, to influence how the sword, sword is, is, is wielded, they'll give it. But don't become so entangled that you confuse your involvement in the civilian affairs with the will of your commanding officer. Our job is to, towards everybody at all places and all times, by every possible means, sacrifice of our life to ascribe the worth that God ascribes to them on the cross of Calvary. And that's how this mustard seed, radically alternative, very different, foolish-looking kind of kingdom of God is going to grow. Would you close your eyes? Holy Spirit, lead me as to how I should end this. Two questions. Number one, if you are a kingdom of God person here this morning, just be honest with yourself and ask the question, have you lost your focus at all? Do you live as radically here as you would if you were a missionary in Cambodia or, or India or any other place? And just let God work with that. Let God work with that. Have you fused, perhaps, the say-so that you have to give your opinion about how the kingdom of the world should operate, have you fused that too closely with your call as a kingdom of God person? Have you bought the veneer, the cultural shine? Just let God work with that. Second question, are you here this morning and you have just done the civic religion? You've been maybe a churchgoer for quite some time. You've maybe got a, a veneer to you. You're a good, decent person. You're a law-abiding person, and that's a good thing. I affirm that. But now perhaps you're realizing that that doesn't make you a kingdom of God person. What makes you a kingdom of God person is when you surrender your inner being over to Jesus Christ. You surrender your heart to Jesus Christ, and you commit your life to following the model of Jesus Christ. That makes you a kingdom of God person. And I want you to let God work with that. In fact, let me ask this question. If you're here this morning, I want to close with a prayer for you. And, and, and that is your desire. You want to become a kingdom of God person. Not just a civic Christian, but a kingdom of God person. Would you just raise your hand very quickly? I see a couple of hands going up. Wonderful, wonderful, all over the place. Just raise your hand. Wonderful, wonderful. Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, thank you. Over there, a few more hands. You who raised your hands, I'm going to pray a prayer with you. In fact, we'll all join with you in this prayer. And this is just the beginning process. When we're done, I want you to come up here and to my right and your left, a person will give you some information. 
that will help you get started on following Jesus, on growing in the Christian walk. Know that you're signing your life away to Jesus Christ, not to Woodland Hills Church or Greg Boyd or anything, but to Jesus Christ. And that's a good thing. This is where life is. But, but recognize that this is the, the, the starting step that changes you from manure to a life-breathing kingdom of God person. Let's all pray together this prayer. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that you are Lord, that you are King, and I owe you my all. And I confess that I haven't given it to you, but I want to now. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for my sin. I put my trust in you. I ask you to forgive me. I surrender my life over to you. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to come into my life and help me live as a radical disciple of yours from this moment on. In Jesus' name. Amen.